Um, we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read, beginning in verse 14, uh, verse 14 to verse 28. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Now he, that was Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from, uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you were nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus' teaching, and we thank you especially for his teachings that are strange and, uh, and a mystery to us. And we ask um, that you would use this word to open up our hearts, um, uh, to teach us about our own lives, and to teach us about you. And Lord, uh, this is your holy, per- in, uh, holy and perfect word, and I am your imperfect, uh, sinful, and weak uh, teacher, So we ask that you would take your perfect word through this imperfect teacher and by your Holy Spirit that you would apply it to each one of our lives that we may trust you more, know you more, and love you more. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, since the beginning of January, we've, we've been uh, looking at the, the uh, journey of Jesus from Galilee, his hometown, his last journey towards Jerusalem, where in Jerusalem he's going to eventually... Uh, die on the cross. And during this journey, it's kind of this intensive um, discipleship time with his disciples where he's walking with them and, and he's, he's doing a lot of teaching and eventually, because pretty soon he's going to be handing over his mission to them because he's going to be gone. So uh, he's on his way to the cross. And so far, you know, some of the things that we've talked about, about what discipleship is, are the average person in Bellingham probably wouldn't have a big problem with. You know, uh, last week... We talked about prayer. And, you know, the average person in Bellingham is a spiritual person. They say, you know, yeah, that's, that's probably a good idea. Uh, prayer, is a, prayer is a good thing. Um, uh, being in touch with your spiritual side, having spiritual practices, I, I think that's a good thing. And, uh, or, 
you know, several weeks ago, um, I, I was talk, we talked about uh, the Good Samaritan and that discipleship is compassion. It's showing compassion on the marginalized and the weak and, and the poor, caring for the poor. And, you know, in Bellingham, actually just this week in Bellingham, I went to a, a, a training event for the um, Project Homeless Connect, which is a, um, a big event that the people of Bellingham put on every year. Last year, they had over 300 volunteers spend a day just serving the homeless, giving them services, you know, uh, medical services, financial services, you know, serving them food, haircuts, everything. And uh, they, there was literally hundreds of extra volunteers who wanted to serve, but uh, they didn't have enough stuff for them to do. And so, you know, average person Bellingham is, Bellingham is a volunteerism, uh, greater good, common good kind of place. So in, in, in some of these topics, you know, most of the people in Bellingham say, this is great. Discipleship sounds like a good thing. Um, but when we come to our passage today, um, Jesus uh, challenges uh, one of really the deepest values, um, he opposes one of the deepest values that the average person in Bellingham uh, has um, with, with this text. And, um, and in fact, uh, one of the, this is one of the things that he says that makes people in Bellingham suspicious of Christianity, suspicious of Jesus' followers. And you can see it most pointedly there in verse 23 where he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And if you take this with some of other Jesus' other teaching, essentially what he's saying is basically if, you're, if you don't believe in me, if you don't follow me, uh, if, you don't, if I'm not your master, then basically your life is lost. Uh, you, uh, you are not in touch with, with the deep reality of, uh, of what it means to be human. Now, I didn't say that. I wouldn't have the nerve <laughs> to say that to you. But Jesus says that, okay? And what we, we need to listen because uh, if we just listen to the parts of Jesus where he's affirming everything we already believe, uh, we're not learning anything from him. But it's kind of, when it comes to the parts where he, he uh, puts a finger on our deepest values, that's when we need to listen. Because the deepest values that we have in Bellingham is what really... If you're going to be a really, uh, have a meaningful life, what does it mean to have a meaningful life? In Bellingham it says, be yourself. Find out who you are and be yourself. Let no one be your master. Follow your own heart. And Jesus is saying, no, I need to be your master. And that's offensive. What I want to show, what I hope to show you in, in the course of this passage is that having Jesus as our master, there's actually nothing that our heart has longed for There's nothing else our our hearts have longed for. The thing that we are really looking for is for a master. And specifically, we're looking for a master like Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of unpack that that question um, of Jesus uh, being our master under three headings. Um, The first is why we don't want Jesus as our master. The second is if he's not our master something else will be. Okay? If, uh, if something else will... If Jesus is not going to be our master, something else is going to be our master. And third, that Jesus is like no other master. So first, um, why we don't want Jesus as our master. And I'm going to give you three reasons. 
Um, the first reason we don't want Jesus as our master is because uh, we think that he is evil. Now, most people, you know, again, I'm talking about the average person in Bellingham. The average person in Bellingham does, would not say Jesus is evil. They say Jesus. You know, there's a guy I meet with, uh, and we get together, we talk about spirituality and, and God and the world and all that stuff. And he, he's even, he believes in, these, uh, in different levels of consciousness. And he says Jesus is, you know, the highest level that he has a definition for, the word for that highest level of consciousness, Jesus is three steps higher than that. So um, even, as, even though he's saying, I'm not a Christian, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't believe Jesus was God, I do believe he was three levels high. So not an evil person, as good as they come, right? That, that's what he's saying. Jesus is good, he's a good moral uh, you know, is he God? Did he die for my for the sins of the world? I don't think so, but he's good. Um, but what we have to understand is that anyone who actually met Jesus never talked like that. They never said things like, "Wow, Jesus is he's he's one of the great gurus of the world." They didn't talk like that. They had two responses to him. They either uh, you know left everything and followed him and worshipped him and said, "He's God, and I'll go die for you," or uh, they yelled things like, crucify him. There were these radical, and, and even here, what you see is, you know, Jesus is going around, he's doing, uh, he's doing miracles, and you see in verse uh, 15, um, and these, you know, these aren't the, the people who say this aren't the religious leaders who are kind of jealous of Jesus, these are just common, average, everyday Joes, the crowds, it says. So some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So essentially what they're saying is this guy, Jesus, it's not that he's a good teacher. It's not that he's doing good things. Jesus is evil. He's, they're basically saying, you know, uh, uh, he's a magician. And he's, he's using his magic powers because he wants to get control of us. He wants to be a ruler over us. He wants to manipulate us. And in fact, um, um, I think one of the main reasons that... A lot of people don't want to talk about Jesus, talk about Christianity. I mean, we'll talk about spirituality, you know, prayer, helping the poor. Let's talk about that. But talking about Jesus, let's, uh, you know, who is Jesus, um, is precisely because their suspicion is that Jesus wants to get a hold of my life. He wants to tell me what I can and can't do. He, uh, he, wants, to make me, he wants to make me go to church. He wants me uh, to uh, make me give my money away. And that basically religion is a cage. And, uh, you know, religious people are trying to get, get you into a cage and to stick you into a cage so that they can be in control of you. And um, now that may be true about religions. <laughs> that may be true about religious people. But the fact is they, they may be evil. They may be trying to control people. They may be trying to manipulate people. But there's no way that you can really say that about Jesus. You know that. You know that you can't say that Jesus is evil. And in fact, uh, what we see in this passage is Jesus is not putting people in a cage. He's setting people free. You know, the, this person was mute. They, this guy couldn't talk. And everyone who came to him, what they found when they met him and they trusted him was freedom. They became themselves. They came alive. They were liberated. They were liberated from social, uh, social oppression. They were liberated from physical uh, ailments is that Jesus is setting people free. And I think that, um, that deep down, uh, even, and uh, this, is, uh, this is what Jesus says. Look at verse 20 again. This is his challenge. They're saying to him, we think you're a demon. We think you're, uh, the reason you can cast out demons is because you're, you work for the devil. 
And this is Jesus' response. Verse 20. But, is, but, if it is, uh, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one, strong, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus is saying that actually there is a dark spiritual power that is, is at work in the world that is enslaving people. And Je- it's the strong man. And Jesus says, I'm the stronger man who's going and I'm freeing people and liberating them and giving them new life. And if we're honest, we know that the reason that we start talking about Jesus is, I'm, even, though, even though he doesn't give us the option to say he's a, he's a good moral teacher, he, it's either... He's someone to worship or he's someone to hate. We always go into the middle and say, oh, he's a good moral teacher because we know we can't say he's evil. But Jesus says, that's not an option for me to be be a middle road. You are either uh, with me or you are against me. You're either on my side or you are working against uh, darkness and evil in the world. That's how extreme his his demand on us for a decision is. And so, um, um, so deep down... We know that Jesus is not bad. We know that he is a liberator. Um, but that leads uh, to a second reason we don't want Jesus to be a master is because, um, is because we are blind to spiritual evil. Um, now another, I think, an issue that uh, you know modern person would have with a text like this is all the talk about the demons and Satan and Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And, um, and you know, we say... Uh, you know, back in that culture, um, this is a pre-modern culture. Uh, people were very simple-minded. Jesus', Jesus worldview is very simple-minded. You know, when someone gets sick, they say, oh, it must have been a demon. Um, someone has a mental illness, it, it must be a demon. It, 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 that was their simplistic way of, of answering all the problems in the world. And uh, the fact is that... Um, uh, that Jesus actually did not explain everything in terms of demonic powers or, or dark spiritual powers. Um, you know, Luke, who's actually writing this, Luke was a doctor, he's a physician. And he's very careful in writing Jesus' miracles to say some of them were healings. Some of the things Jesus were doing were actually he was uh, caring for people's physical needs. There, was, there were biological problems that people had. They weren't spiritual problems, they were biological problems. And other people, there was a, a dark... Uh, a demon or a, an evil spiritual evil that was oppressing people and that's what needed to be dealt with or for other people there was a social you know uh, they were the, the religious leaders were oppressing them and, uh, and laying big burdens on them and so, so Jesus uh, answered those with, with a social solution so what you see is that Jesus actually has a very um, uh, it's not a simplistic view of the world it's a very uh, uh, well rounded actually Historically, Christians have said that the reason uh, that the place where uh, evil comes from in the world is actually not just one place, but three places. Maybe you've heard of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So that, uh, um, and so that a Christian, you know, if you have someone, let's say, that uh, is, is, is an alcoholic, the Christians say, why is, why is this person struggling with alcoholism? What's the explanation? What's going on in their life? Well, the Christians say, well, first of all, uh, there's the world. This person is living in a fallen world. You know, maybe they grew up in a home where uh, they were mistreated, they were neglected, they were, they were beaten, they were abused. They were, uh, people were sinning against them. 
Or, and they were being taught by their parents, this is how you live. You know, you live a life of alcoholism. They're being trained by the world. So there's this social dynamic to why, to why, they're, uh, why they're struggling with alcoholism. But on the other hand, uh, there's the flesh. Christians say, you know, actually that person's not a victim. That person makes their own choices. And uh, the flesh says that, um, that they're actually sinful. They're greedy. They're, they're hungry for pleasure. They're self-centered. And uh, that there's something about their own heart that they need to repent of and that they need to change in their, about themselves. It's not just other people that are hurting them. It's, it's, it's themselves. So there's, uh, there's the world. There's the flesh. There's ourselves. And then, there's, and then Christians also say, you know, uh, addiction, probably one of the best descriptions of what addiction is, what alcoholism is, sla- what al- alcoholism is, is slavery. This person is somehow enslaved to do the bidding of their addiction. They can't, their bonds that are holding them down, that are, that are broken. There is a spiritual power that is enslaving them. So what you see, this is actually, a, this is not simplistic. This is a very well-rounded and nuanced kind of uh, view of the world. It's quite sophisticated. In fact, if you were to compare it to people who say, you know, basically, uh, there's a scientific explanation for everything. Um, you know, you, uh, there's a psychological reason, uh, there's a biological reason that you're having these, these problems. That's actually a much more simple-minded view of the world. And Jesus is much more, much more well-rounded, much more complex. And what, and what we realize is that when we think that uh, we have a scientific explanation that explains everything, I mean, scientific things explains a lot of things, but if we say it explains everything, then what we think is that we can solve our own problems. We think if we have psychology, if we, uh, if we have a doctor, if we have uh, biology, then we can answer. We can manage it ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why we don't want Jesus to be our master is we, we can handle it. And so that's, that's kind of the third reason. It's not just because we're blind to spiritual evil and the complexity of evil in the world, um, but also we think I can manage uh, my own life. Um, and if I can manage my own life, why do I need Jesus to be my master? Well, um, you know, Jesus tells a strange uh, parable. Uh, look again at verse 14. Let's read this again. This is, very, this is, is interesting. Um, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Um, I, last, last week I shared with you a little bit that when I was a teenager, um, I got sent away to a, you know, it was kind of a rehab behavioral modification program for troubled teenagers. I, I lived in this school for a year and a half, um, you know, all kinds of drug dealers and dropouts, and, and we were living together, kind of getting our, our life together. And, and they were actually, I was one of very few uh, Christians in this, uh, in this program. And, um, um, and uh, there was one guy in particular who, uh, who we got there at about the same time, and, and, you know, our lives kind of changed together there. He, he was not a Christian, but, um, but we were very close friends. His name was George, and uh, he used to call me Opie. I say I look, you know, because I was like Opie Taylor, so he's like, uh, hey, Ope, 
hey, George. You know, that's how we talk to each other. And, um, and so the, uh, and, you know, George and I, he was, George was very well liked. He was respected. He had a lot of wisdom. He was warm. He was the kind of person who could get along with anyone. And, and, and he, you know, he came from, he was uh, kind of in the rave scene, meth head, um, uh, you know, selling a lot of drugs before. And he turned this big, warm, uh, George, you know, that's George, he's warm. And, um, and one of the things about this program is that you weren't allowed to exchange phone numbers when you went home. So you, most of the people I was there with, I have not been in touch with, and I, I, I don't know what happened to them. And, um, but somehow I got George's phone number after we both went home, and I talked to him about seven months after he'd gone home. He lived in Dallas. And I talked to him, I was like, George, hey, how's it going? How's it going? Being, I mean, you're, you know, when you're 16 and you're away for a year and a half, there's, there's quite a transition coming back into the real world. And um, I was like, George, how's it going? And uh, it turned out that within two months of coming home, his girlfriend was already pregnant. Um, he was back on drugs. And at seven months, he said to me, you know, I would do anything to go back to the program. I would do anything. I mean, his life was a disaster. And the last I heard was that two months after I talked to him, uh, he died of a heroin overdose. And you say, what? What happened? I mean, he was so alive. So uh, his life was cleaned up. His house was cleaned up. You know, the evil seemed to have been uh, um, put out of his life. And I'll tell you that as a very young Christian, I had just become a Christian, I remember reading this passage. It's very strange about this spirit that goes out in the desert and the guy cleans up his house and then it brings back seven spirits and the last state is worse than the first. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Is that what Jesus says is um, that uh, there are, um, sorry, let me see. Um, there are a lot of ways um, to change your life. There are a lot of ways to get your life and your house clean and in order. But if, you're, uh, if your house, your life is empty, if it's clean, if it's, it's put back in order, but there's nothing in the heart of it, there's, no, there's nothing in the center, um, then what Jesus, Jesus' warning says this. Um, then, go, uh, then, it, uh, then the spirit goes out and it brings seven other spirits more, uh, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. And that's exactly what happened to George. George's life was cleaned up. He had gotten things in order, but there was nothing. It was empty. There was nothing in the middle. And there was no master. And what Jesus is going to say is that um, even though we think we can manage our own lives, if we do not make Jesus our master, something else will become our master. So that's our second point. First, why, why we don't... Uh, why we don't want Jesus to be our master? Because we think he's evil, he's manipulating us, but really we know he's good. Um, we are blind to spiritual evil. The world is much more complex than, than we think. And therefore, we, cannot, uh, we, and we think we can manage it ourselves, but we can't. And the reality is, is that if, uh, if Jesus is not our master, something else will be. Um, um, now... Um, And the reason I say that is because you were made, the way that you were made, you were made in the image of God. God made you uh, to have a life that is kind of derivative, that is dependent, 
is, uh, is following, is to follow God. That's, that's just your makeup. That's how you are wired. And so actually, uh, you know, about a year ago, I was talking to a gal who, um, we get, I was talking to her. She's, she's not a Christian. She's, she's a very successful woman. Um, uh, and she's kind of a, you know, an American Buddhist, I guess, you know, kind of some, uh, Makings of, of a, a Eastern spirituality that's kind of landed in America, and she's quite reflective about her own heart and her own life and her soul. And we were talking, and one of the things, even though as a Christian, one of the places where we had a uh, could really agree was she began, and this was her language. She began to say that the world is full of false gods. That cluttered everywhere are there things that are making promises us to us to be our gods that want us to serve them. So you know. Other people's approval, um, money, um, a career, a job, um, a relationship. There are certain things that um, we basically say to them, I will do whatever you ask of me. And they make promises to us that uh, you'll, be, you'll be fulfilled, you'll feel like uh, you've made it in life if you can do this. And uh, there are things that, that want to make us masters. That was her language. They're false gods. They're false gods. And... Um, and in fact, what, Calvin, what John Calvin says um, is that, uh, uh, you know, maybe some of you heard this famous quote, that our hearts are idle factories, that we are always looking for things, we, because we want, ma- we want a master. And so we look, at, we look for things that we can turn into a God, and we can worship, and we can serve, and we can uh, do everything it asks of us, and we can uh, hope for it to make promises to us. Um, and the reason for that is because we're a worshiper. Um, and so the questions that we need to ask are, what are the things that um, we are making uh, into a master? What are the things that we will do whatever that thing asks of us? And here are a few questions to kind of determine what are the things in your life that are challenging uh, you to be, the, to be master instead of Jesus. These are kind of diagnostic questions. What are the things that you daydream about? What are the things that occupy your mind? Just where does your mind go? When you're sitting around, you have nothing to do. What are you dreaming about? What, do you, what kind of gives you that pleasure to think about? What do you give most of your time to? What, uh, what are the things that you would give your mind to? If you didn't have other restraints and I could say, I wish I could just give all my time to this. What is that thing? What are the things that bring you the most anxiety? The things that you look into the future and you're most concerned about? What are the things that you envy the most in other people? The things that create bitterness in you because you don't have them because other people do have them. Those are good questions to reflect through and say, whatever that thing is, that thing is, is challenging you to be your master. Now, I, you know, I have a number of these things that uh, are challenging me in my life. One thing, you know, for me, I'm a pastor and I spend a lot of time preaching, writing sermons and and knowledge, uh, books and stuff like that, uh, you know, are a big thing that are a challenge to be a master to me. I mean, if you look at, uh, if, you know, if you're with me, if you spend the time without me, you know, I, I, if I'm driving somewhere, if I'm going to the store, I always grab a book on my way out. I, always, I have a book in every room in my house. They're cluttered everywhere. You know, Shannon stops talking for, she doesn't talk a lot, but, you know, we're not talking, we're not talking for a minute. I have a free minute. I just grab the book. Uh, I'm reading, and uh, and what I think is because what I think is what's going to make me a successful pastor. What's going to make me uh, uh, good in my ministry and effective in people's lives? I need to have knowledge. It's 
not Jesus that's going to make me successful. It's not Jesus that's going to make me effective. It's knowledge. You know, one of the things that's interesting uh, that the Bible talks about is you become the things that you worship. And, you know, I, I, you, you've met people like this who are, are book people. They're academics. They read a ton. And you know what they become? They become a book. They don't listen. They don't ask questions. They pontificate, you know. They, they just have knowledge. They're just spewing knowledge. They know, every, they know something about everything, and they're just talking and talking. They're not, they don't care about people. They're not involved in people's life. They worship books, and they become a book. You become what you worship. And uh, the fact is um, that if you're honest about your heart, um, there is something that is a good thing in your life. I mean, books are a good thing, right? It's good for me to read. It's good for, and that's a part, I should be doing that as part of my job. But when we make it the ultimate thing, when I make it my master, when I make it the thing that I trust in, the thing that makes, gives me anxiety, right? Um, then uh, we just need to be aware that we are all doing that. And we will become like that. And our hearts want to make certain things masters. And so what I want to tell you, this last point, is that uh, if we don't make Jesus our master, something else will be. Something else will come and fill our empty house. But there is no master like... Uh, Jesus is like no other master. He is different than all the other masters. Now I'm going to tell you why. Uh, now, I, I really love... I don't know how that word master hits with you. You know, Jesus is your master. Some people that might kind of be like, I don't like that thought of master. But I'll, I'll tell you why that's a, I like that word. Um, and for those of you who have dogs, I think you're going to, uh, you'll appreciate the word master. Because when you think, you know, some of us, the word master evokes like a slave master, you know, do this, uh, uh, you know, do what I say, crack the whip, right? Um, you know, and, uh, but when you think of a dog that comes into a loving house, uh, is cared for, and, uh, you know, the kids love it. It's, it's a part of the family. And the dog, does the dog like being mastered or does the dog not like being mastered? Would the dog rather be out wild, uh, you, know, you know, digging through trash cans in the, uh, in the neighborhood or in the woods or something? You know, would the dog rather be doing that? Would the dog rather have a master that every time the master walk, walks in the door, it jumps on him, it's licking it, wagging the tail. I mean, it's happy. I want a master. And what you see with the dog um, is that um, the dog learned, by coming into a family, the dog becomes something that it never could have been on its own, right? I mean, some of you have dogs that are especially, you're, you know, the dog's loving. If the dog was just a wild dog, it would have no personality. you say, oh, my dog is so funny. He does these little things. It's like, uh, right? And it begins to take on personality. The dog, sometimes you think the dog is smiling, right? And you say, I think my dog's smiling. Um, the dog learns to be uh, gentle uh, with kids, you know, by being in a family where it's being mastered. It learns how to, you know, oh, it's a small kid. I got to be, you know, I got to be, approach him carefully and stuff like that. The dog transforms and the whole life of the, and potential of the dog is wrapped up in being mastered. And that's, uh, that's true for us as well. Um, and one of the things that's so I love about the image of a dog is who's serving who? When you're a dog's master, who's serving who? Are you, is the dog serving you or are you serving the dog? I mean, overwhelmingly, you're doing everything for the dog. You're taking it on walks, feeding it. You know, it's getting uh, uh, trained, um, you know, potty trained, and you're cleaning up its mess. 
and you're loving it, and you know, it comes up to you, and it wants attention, and you're, you're giving it attention. The master is doing everything for the dog. And we think our, our image that we have of being mastered is I'm going to be, I'm a, I, is a demanding master who's going to expect everything from me, and I'm going to be getting very little. And I'm going to have to do, I'm going to be in a cage, I'm going to have to do everything my master says. And the fact is, when we make idols in the world, idols work that way. Books, you know what books say? Oh, good, you read some books? Look at these 50 million books you haven't read that you know nothing about. You, you, you think you know something, you know nothing. And you better slave your whole life. And, and, oh, you think you're starting to get smart? Look at so-and-so. He knows way more than you. And books are just going to pound, pound me and say, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And, uh, and, and the more I read about, the more books become, become an idol, the, uh, the more oppressive they are. And, you know, whatever that is, your job, the more you give to a job, um, the more you expect from, from a relationship. And uh, what we find in Jesus is, um, let, let me say another way to put that, is that a false god will never say to you, it is finished. A job will never say to you, it is finished. Um, if you're expecting from a relationship that that's the center of your life, that's your master... Uh, it will never say it is finished. If you're looking for other people's approval and you're living for other people's pr- approval, it will never say it is finished. It will say, serve me, serve me, serve me. But Jesus the Master goes to the cross for us. He serves us. He dies for us. He sacrifices for us. And he says, it is finished. Rest. Have life. I am yours. Be like a dog in my house and you will become like me. And I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to pour into you. No other God will do that, I promise you. You were made to have Jesus as your master. So, let me just ask you, what, what is tempting you to be your master? And this is, this is an invitation to repent. Repentance is just to say, I don't trust in these other masters, I trust in Jesus. And when you do that, your life comes alive, just like a dog comes alive in a loving family. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you that you are a good master, and we just, you know our hearts that we love uh, that you are our master. We love that we can follow you. We love that you speak your word to us. We love that you serve us. And we love ultimately that our master has died on the cross for us and said it is finished. Um, Our lives are complete in Jesus. And we ask um, that you would give us, uh, allow us to rest in that. And um, we just thank you uh, for your goodness and for your steadfast love. In Christ's name, amen.